Well, the biggest mistake is probably that they don't, right? I mean, I, of, of our five senses, all of them are are designed for the here and now, whether it's our hunger, our thirst, our feeling, our sensitive, our sensations, our hearing. Uh, so it's just very difficult to 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 realize that things might be different and stranger in the future. Why is business actually a kind of laziness, and have we lost our pioneering spirit? How do millennials act on a home party with Justin Bieber without any phone? And finally, why is it so important to be able to say no? These are only a few of the things we cover in today's episode, so please stay and enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Hey Change. And today we are talking to Magnus Lindquist, who is a trend spotting futurologist and author who weaves together important current trends to forecast what life, society, and business might look like in the future. He has given in excess of a thousand keynote speeches over the past decade to everyone from Fortune 500 CEOs and civil servants in the Middle East to basically anyone looking to be inspired and enlightened by trend spotting and future thinking. As a writer, Magnus is driven by a relentless curiosity about our mental space where the outside world collides with the human brain. His recent book, Manifesto, which was released in 2016, tells us why small ideas matter in a world of grand narratives. He has won several awards for his performances on stage and for his books, but perhaps the best acclaim ever given was from an HR director in the UK, who said, Magnus Lindqvist is the best Swedish export since ABBA and Meatballs. Well, I had the honor of meeting with Magnus and hearing him speak at the H&M's Changemakers Lab in Stockholm early April this year. And it's with pleasure I am today introducing him as a guest on Hey Change. So, Magnus, welcome on board. Wow, what an intro. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. Well, uh, is there anything you'd like to add to that intro or like something about your personalities and what you're truly passionate about? Um, I wouldn't want to add to that lengthy intro, but um, I was inspired when I met you at Hey Change and you told me about the business idea that you are working on. I don't know if it's a secret, so I'm not going to disclose it, but it inspired me. It's not a secret. It's okay. You, you're talking about sustainable the model. models. Yeah, yeah, sustainable models and models who stand for something and not just a pretty face. I thought that was highly topical and brave and inspiring. Thank you so much. Hopefully it's going to kick off. So I'm, I'm believing in the idea. Um, and this is also a question that I ask all people that I interview, just so you can really get to know who you are. Um, so if you were a spice, which one would you be and why? Oh, a spice. Um, oh, what would I be? Oh, that's a really difficult question. I probably should have thought this through. <laughs> so I, I would probably be the old spice cologne. Because um, mm. it was the first cologne that I ever bought. I think I was about 13 living in the United Kingdom. 
and they had a really funky advertisement where a guy was surfing and he and he and he, and he was I think he surfed into a bar, if I don't recall, and then it was like, in slow motion, of course, and then it was like uh, Old Spice something something. Okay. So that's that's who I'd be. I, I identify with that. Okay, is it the old <laughs> or the spice part of Old Spice you identify with? Uh, maybe both. I'm just maybe kidding. <laughs> all right, I'm just gonna go. I'm not gonna go too deep into it. Um, all right. So you're calling yourself a futurologist. Like, what does that even mean? Great question. So I can only answer why I call myself futurologist. It is one of those job titles that is ready for anyone who can't find a natural fit in the business world. So I started in management consulting like many of my peers at business school. And then I went into advertising and I, I just hated being employed. I thought it I thought it was awful. So um in 2003, I started doing trend spotting workshops for friends and acquaintances and former clients for free, so I didn't make any money. And I noticed that there was this thirst for trends and what's going on in the world and perspectives. Uh, this was also the, the early days of blogging, and, and uh, I think the podcast movement started shortly thereafter. Um, and then I noticed that people were also interested. Okay, so this is what's happening, but where, where, what's it pointing to? Where is this heading? And I started calling myself a futurist. But futurists were a kind of art movement in Italy in the early 20th century that has been associated with fascism. So I thought it was a pretty poor job title. <laughs> then I found um, a former employee of British Telecom called Ian Pearson who had coined the concept of being a futurologist. And, oh, I, if you wonder what the noise is, because you asked me to be in a quiet spot, I, of course, picked Starbucks in the center of I was Stockholm. thinking, like, are you sitting in a coffee shop or something? Cause it yeah, in a like modern... I, I, I see myself as a modern, you know, knowledge worker. So, of course, Starbucks is my office. I'm You're sorry You're thinking about quiet that. spot in Sweden, Starbucks, yeah, obviously. Yeah, Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be great? I'm sorry. We'll see. We'll, it's okay. We'll, It'll work so, out. So, so, futurology, ology, of course, the, the art of or the, the knowledge base of. So, this is really the idea of what future thinking entails. I'm not so much into prediction. I'm more interested in how we think about the future, what traps we fall into, and what are some of the tricks and tools we can use to get better at it? Cool. That's what a futurologist is. That, that's a long answer. I'm sorry. No, so, but, but just to get this right, did you make this term up yourself? No, I stole it from Ian Pearson. Oh, okay. Because cool, I, I was like, either way, that's awesome. It. Okay. Yeah, oh, thank you. Well, I thanked him for it. <laughs> okay, that's So one of, my, one of my concepts is R&D, rip off and duplicate. That's, that's always the best way of getting ahead. Definitely. Just that's the way to do it. Um, and like one of the reasons I really loved listening to you so much and like I just to share with all the other guys I was sitting there listening to his speech and I was just smiling the entire time because it was just awesome but anyways you talked about the future in terms of something that isn't set and that can't be planned for but rather something that is like beautifully unpredictable and why do you mm. think it's important to look at the future that way so I'm trying to find a Oh, they have a hidden spot here in Starbucks. Hold on. Oh. <laughs> oh, this is great. This is turning I'll into an here. adventure. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to be much more quiet here, I think. Um, 
Oh, sorry. What was the question? So yeah, <laughs> yeah you, like how you talked about future as being something oh. that isn't set and you can't be planned for, but something rather unpredictable, and that you should Great. be looking at the future you. that way. So we have a tendency to see the future as a place, as a set narrative, and we get that kind of deer in the headlights moment where mm-hmm. we believe it's it's destiny. Uh, especially pronounced, I'd say, in the past couple of years with, with, you know, if you look at digitalization, which should be a cause for excitement, it's turned into this robots are going to steal our jobs, Silicon Valley getting rich uh, while everybody else is getting poorer. You know, it was like a set narrative. Similarly, we have these big ideas right now about the rise of China and the rise of populism and the fall of the West and liberal democracy. So we we have a a natural tendency to gravitate towards these set narratives, which is why I believe it's important to fight for the right to create your own future, Mm. no matter who you are and where you are in the world. Um, My latest book that you talked about in the intro, Manifesto, is all about looking at these very personal moments you know, somebody like Melita Benz, who was just a, she was a housewife in Germany who was frustrated with the quality or lack thereof of her coffee. And she ended up inventing the Melita coffee filter by just piercing her son's drawing paper mm-hmm. to draw some of the lumps of coffee out. So you have this very personal moment, personal frustration, a moment of creation and inspiration. And it ends up being this global product, but it didn't come from these huge ideas or, or politicians screaming into our ears what's important or, uh, you know, this this uh, uh, huge movement on Facebook. So uh, that's why I talk about to future instead of the future, seeing the future as a verb, not a noun. Okay, so like I'm just trying to grasp it. So you're saying mm. that sometimes people look at the future from out of fear and thinking that like we are as a big unit moving into something that's just going to be worse and worse. But it's important to look at a different line of future that is like where you can create your own reality. So my, my belief is that fear is the kind of default setting of the brain unless you do some thinking. Mm. But thinking is actually pretty tough. I mean, being rational or looking empirically or thinking long term, these are difficult tasks. So it's always better for the for the brain to have this kind of fear mode. So you can just kind of escape or dislike or judge. And that's the easy part. I mean, it's it's phenomenally easy to feel something, uh, to judge someone and to just go, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm too afraid. So so again, it takes an effort to move beyond that stage. Uh, I usually talk about the prison of the present, which is this, we're, we're locked into what's what's possible right now, what we can do with our current tools. And there's a tendency, of course, to believe that that's, that's our future, that's our destiny. We'll never, we're gonna run out of oil, we're never gonna conquer other planets, we're never gonna uh, be able to feed everyone and time and time again history has proven it wrong at this or at least the last 150 years has proven it wrong We're showing how we can overcome and break out of the prison of the present 
Right, so like, what do you think is then the biggest mistake people are doing today when trying to prepare for the future and looking at the future? Well, the biggest mistake is probably that they don't, right? I mean, I, of, of our five senses, all of them are, are designed for the here and now, whether it's our hunger, our thirst, our feeling, our, sensitive, our sensations, our hearing. Uh, so it's just very difficult to... To, to realize that things might be different and stranger in the future. I remember reading um, Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert, a Harvard professor. It was about 10 years ago. And he said, he used a statistic, he said that on average, we think about the future 12% of our time. So that's like an hour of every eight-hour working day. Meaning that, of course, the rest of the time, we're just reacting, reacting to emails, uh, headlines, meetings, and other stimuli. Right. So again, the biggest mistake that people do regarding future thinking is that they just don't do it. They just don't think about it. When I work with top executives who say, oh, great speech, what should we do? I say, budget time for nothing. Budget time, I mean, literally block an hour out of your calendar every day if you're a top executive, possibly, uh, maybe every week if you're more of a middle manager. But but I mean, the ideal would be at one day, one hour every day, you have an hour of nothingness where you reflect, you think, you you rise above the here and now. It's, it's really interesting that you're talking about this because I was just listening to another podcast yesterday um, and this guy was talking about how we're being hijacked all the time from our social media and our, you know, smartphones and stuff. And we, mm. if we keep letting ourselves being hijacked, like we are like giving away our time and energy and focus to other people. So mm. it's, like you're saying, it's so important to like realize that if we want to create our own future, we really need to get to action right now. And every day, you know, just map out that window of an hour to like, okay, what's happening right now? How can I make it better for tomorrow? Because um, mm. it is. I would. I think it's a great word, hijacked. I would. I would go one step further and say busyness is actually a kind of laziness mm. uh, and this is counterintuitive because people believe if they're busy a lot of meetings a lot of emails I'm an important person but it really shields you from having to think about what really matters and deal with the things you really want to get around to and if you fill your calendar with other people's agendas which is what i believe this other podcast was referencing being hijacked can you come to this meeting can you meet with me can we do this can we do this you know when when are you going to have time for whatever your goal might be whatever your idea or how are you going to find it i mean i i there's a great um speech from the rsa in london i believe the gentleman's name was Kevin Rowland Smith. I'm wrong about one of those last things, but never mind. He, this was about two years ago, and he talked about the fact that we keep ourselves so topped off with ideas all the time. So there's really no room for new ideas. Um, I mean, we, we might have too much focus on the importance of having ideas, getting ideas, having many ideas. And I believe it might be the opposite. This This at least nothingness or this slack space in your brain as a place where the future is made 
And I think, like you said before, I think that's what actually scares people. Like, we, we don't have the courage to take in just no time. And that's mm. where the, the true, well, I like to say magic happens, because that's when, you know, you get in touch with your inner thoughts and mm. the part that really knows what he's supposed to do. But we keep, like, putting this noise on top of it and just keep being busy all the time. So we're actually heading nowhere. So that's, a, that's, that's a, and it's scary. And mm-hmm. it's scary, right? I mean, I, I, had a, I had a strategy change. I used to do somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 150 keynote talks per year, meaning that I was, you know, a true road warrior, always on a plane, my wife and children constantly uh, frustrated by the lack of face time with her husband and father and so on. And then three years ago, I did a strategy change, which was I started or I actually I hired someone who could say no because I really can't. So I, I've, I've in essence halved, I mean cut in half my workload, wow. and that sounds great, but it's actually, you know, tremendously anxiety-inducing. It's frightening. It's frustrating because there's so much more time to feel and think. Right. And uh, I think I don't know if it's true. But there was supposedly some lab experiment where people would rather get an electric shock than being alone with their thoughts. And never mind if it's scientifically based or just a sound bite. I I think there's a ring to that. People would rather um, be um, electrically shocked and probably many other things than being alone with their thoughts. Let me give you a funny example of this. Um, A friend of mine's daughter... um, has been an exchange student in California over the past year. And for some strange reason, she found herself at a house party of Justin Bieber in Los wow. Angeles, <laughs> where where you were not allowed to bring your cell phone in because they don't want any selfies or embarrassing photos or anything online. So all these millennials had to leave their cell phone at the door which just made them incredibly awkward because of course when normally when we're awkward and we don't want to deal with stuff we we zo- we zoom out into our mobile phone that's mm-hmm. what we do in public transport uh, that's what we do in coffee shops or in airports and when you're not allowed to have it so i i i just picture this scene so many times you have like probably this rowdy uh party hungry Justin Bieber and, and the, all these millennials standing around not really knowing what to do. Right. It's just <laughs> awkwardly like, yeah. what am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed mm. to like behave myself? Yeah, exactly. So I think anyway. that's so interesting. Like this is a little bit off topic, but what you're saying mm. is that we're creating this world where our identity is through our mobile phones or whatever mm. we're using for device. And like we don't even know anymore how to behave without them. And like sometimes I, I found myself not even being able to watch a movie. Like I can't watch a movie from start to finish without looking at my phone. Because no. I, get, I get awkward. I'm like I'm just by myself but I need to like see if something happened. Or it's, it's really good for you to just leave, like take a day and just leave it behind and not take it with you. Because you need to practice just... Um, interacting with human beings again i guess and just being mm. alone with your thoughts because it's scary but it's it's really good um so i went i went to that. see the new wolverine movie logan and after about 30 minutes the projector broke down and they had to restart the movie 
And I just thought the hell with it. And I went out to watch the moviespoiler.com on my cell phone to find out that the movie was ending. So I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, we, we are... We are usually optimistic where we shouldn't be and pessimistic where we shouldn't be. So I've always said, oh, it really doesn't matter. You know, cell phones are great. We can use them for all these things. But then, of course, I read Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows. And he made that precise point that all of these, I think President Obama called it weapons of mass distraction. Uh, they've, They've turned us from being able to focus long term on like a dense book or a long movie into these fast thinkers who prefer hovering quickly between Instagram photo, email, half of an article, a snippet of a movie, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, whether this is good or bad, we can discuss, but it, it seems to be happening. And both you and I have um, ADD, of course, when it comes to movie watching. Right. But, but, then, but then again, as a futurologist, I have to say, why are movies... Uh, somewhere between 90 and 120 minutes. Well, this has to do with the length of film reels 50 and 100 years ago. Mm. I mean, there's really no point for a film in 2017 to stick to that format. Um, Why can't we have eight-minute awesome spectacles in a cinema worth 30 bucks to pay for? Or why can't we have a you know, 24 hour ongoing movie experience. I mean, I've had insomnia over the past year. I blame my home mortgage for that. (laughs) So I've found all of these really cool, you know, 24 hours. So there's, there's one of 24 hours of just white noise on an airline. And there's another one where you have the noise being made in a space station as you're sleeping, watching the earth. And then, of course, there are these supposed live feeds from satellites. I don't know if they're actual live feeds, but nevertheless, it's 24 hours of a satellite going around the Earth, capturing all these images. Um, And that's a movie as well. So I I, I don't think we should berate ourselves too much from the inability of watching 120 minutes quiet without a cell phone because you said like we have changed and that's just like a natural flow transformation and um, Mm. i just want to when we're talking Mm. about like because you said something too like we are now used to having like all the information in our hands and like Mm. uh, just being able to if we need something it's right there and you don't have to wait for anything but something you talked about in stockholm which i really liked Mm. is you brought up this i don't know who this adventurer Mm. um and like back in the days, we were really eager to just try new things and experiment. Whereas today, yeah. we are like, that's dangerous. Um, yeah, I brought up Alfred Nobel, actually, right. the inventor of dynamite. And the fact that he uh, accidentally um, blew up his brave brother in the 1800s. Uh, and, and I kind of joke, and I say, we just don't do that anymore. Now we have risk managers. I'm overdoing it a bit, but I think there's some, um, and I'm not the only one, by the way, to make that mark, but... I think there's some kind of pioneering spirit which our grandparents or our great-grandparents had. It's just getting lost to us. It's even getting lost now in the um, in the U.S. I, I know uh, Tyler Cohen's new book, The Complacent Class, is all about how Americans are less willing to travel from work, uh, 
less willing to start new companies, tolerance of failure had gone down, and so on. So, yeah, there there is a pioneering spirit. I don't know if it's been lost or if we need to reinvent a new kind of pioneering spirit. Um, but I, I I think too often we we look at the world and see too many perfections. Right. Um, and, a, and and being an optimist versus being a pessimist has, like everything else, turned into a kind of battle on social media where people whack over each other over the head with statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, this is really not about whether you're an optimist or pessimist. It's about realizing how little we know. And you said that we have, we now have all the information in our hands. And I actually just, I don't think we do. I just think that's a convenient opinion to have. Mm, like, oh, so? isn't it great? But, but isn't it more interesting to think about what we don't know? Right. Even though you have uh, Google and Wikipedia uh, for free at the click or a swipe of a button. Um, I, sorry for interrupting. I just love mm. it. I just want to pick up what you're saying because this is what my podcast is all about, is finding happiness in new realities. And mm. I, I really want... I to... love that tagline. Thanks. That's um, a great tagline. Because <laughs> I, I think like we are so afraid of not being perfect so we just kind of like follow the stream and do what everyone else is doing and we're so afraid of like being different. But like you said, we need to like reinvent this spirit and mindset of trying new things and trying to be curious and like what is around the corner? What if I do it this way instead? And maybe that's even better. And maybe instead of following the stream, we can lead the stream. So mm. I'm, that's why I'm, I'm trying to inspire listeners, uh, you who's listening, to just be more open to the fact that we can still learn more, we can still do even better. And it's not, it's not dangerous to try. And actually, the trying part in itself is where we grow and learn. So it's really important to sometimes just leave that phone behind and be like, okay, let's just try it. Mm. Let's see what happens. Mm. So finding happiness through new realities. Mm. My, um, so one of the most interesting concepts that I've come across in my research is the idea of fitness landscapes. It doesn't have anything to do with fitness or gyms. It's, it's about finding the right fit and thinking of it as a landscape. So this means you might be on this plateau of happiness and happiness, probably like everything else, has this slow sinking feeling. So to keep you on this happiness plateau, you'll need to do new things. But then over in the horizon, you see a greater peak of happiness for some reason, a different life, a different idea, a different, different way of living. But the path to go there goes through unhappiness or misery or just insecurity. Or... Because first you have to climb down from the plateau. So imagine you're in the Alps. You climb up on one mountain. You're there. You see another mountain in the distance. And then you have to climb down and go sideways. Mm. And I think that's what's so frightening to people because we want to avoid pain. So I think to find happiness through new realities you first have to expose yourself to unhappiness and disillusion and bewilderment in order to explore the greater peak and this is very common for a lot of my friends are 
have gotten divorces or are thinking about it. Not all of them, but many have considered it. But then they're like, oh, my God, but, you know, won't I be lonely? What if I never meet someone? What if I lose all my money? What if, well, actually, my, my current spouse, isn't she or he great? Well, hold on. And they, they have all these arguments to prevent them from exploring that chasm or exposing themselves for that chasm. And I think that's a big culprit. And I see something similar in how society deals with the future. We, we know that we probably have to decarbonize the economy. But what if, what if, what if GDP growth collapses? What if, what if trade, this thing that has made us wealthy collapses? How are we going to live? So we, we cling to the present and we put all this red tape around it, it instead of just throwing ourselves out into that black hole. And I, I, I don't think you can do it too often. I think you, you have time for once, twice, maybe three times times in your life do that do that journey between mountains Mm. but um i think it's i think it's what's needed to find find happiness in new realities well i was gonna just wrap up with my final three i feel like Mm. you kind of already touched upon my first let's do them final three let's just we can do yeah you can say it again just so we really get the message through here so my final three are why is change important, number one? Um, oh, that's like saying why is why is why is the atmosphere important? Well, it's it's there. I mean, it doesn't really matter what you think about it. Um, the contrarian in me is tempted to say actually change is not that important. Football is more important. <laughs> but no, I know it's it's kind of yeah. there, and uh, I think you know, do you want to be changed or do you want to? change and i think you you touched upon something similar with with leading the current or surfing the wave so i'll use all of that i like that do you want to be changed or do you want to change mm. it's like it's making... like a t-shirt right sounds like something you find in in uh venice california on a, <laughs> on a bracelet <laughs> right it's one of those taglines yeah. okay so number two then why do you think change is so hard and what is one advice you wish you could give to people that you've learned from your own experiences of embracing change so i'm always careful to say that i can only talk about my own experience uh, i believe too often we we believe that there's a kind of recipe to be learned mm. one of my in my book i talk about james mclemore um, who drove drunk in Florida and invented the Whopper Burger for Burger King. And of course, there's no learning in that. There's no like, I mean, if you drive drunk tonight, you'll just get a DUI or, right. or, or God forbid, do... a crash. Right. Yeah, no, you, so you can't repeat it. But you can talk about it. So I think in my journey, I was always worried. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that I would fail at every step of the way. And I think that's still there. And then I talked to David Lagerkrans, who wrote the new um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo book, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Girl in the Spider's Nest, Lisbeth Salander book. And he said, a sign of successful people is that they have that kind of disaster thinking. I mean, that's what he said. All the, all the famous, uh, important, successful people that I've met, they've had that kind of 
constant disaster scenario looming in their head. What if I fail? What if it all falls apart? I'm no good. I'm not gonna. And I think that's a good driver to have. So, to use another Venice T-shirt um, slogan, you know, there's surprising wisdom in those cliches. Oh, yeah. But fe- feel the fear and do it anyway. I think it's a, feel the fear, do it anyway. Whether it's fear of flying, fear of the dark, fear of losing money, fear of starting on your own, fear of being alone, fear of New York, fear of small towns, whatever it might be, do it anyway. Yeah, and I also do think that sometimes the fear is really just an indicator of what we really want to do. So we need mm, to tap into that. Yeah, fear. that's subconscious, though. That That's for our next episode about Jungian therapy. <laughs> right, we have a few more to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah great. All right, great, great answer. So my final one, and this is more personal to me, but mm-hmm. I've coined my own word, which is retruthing. Mm-hmm. And I think retruthing. that that is retruthing. Like mm. Sounds very Donald Trump, though. Yeah, well, this is this is my word now, so don't try mm-hmm. and give it to him. But it's, okay. I th- it's a way of just uh, retruthing means that looking at, at things from a new perspective and just mm. always finding new ways of thinking about things. And I think that's like the base of finding happiness in your realities. Um, mm. And mm. so I will wa- like you to retruth something in your world, in our world mm. right now. To retruth, okay. Um, off the top of my head, I would say, and I don't know if this so much as retruth as a re reprogram, but most things that are uh, presented as zero sum games usually aren't in the long term. You know, us versus them, uh, country X versus country Y, uh, running out of resources. I mean, very few things are zero-sum games. So zero-sum thinking, winners versus losers, is really a way of implanting anxiety and belligerence into the world. It's it's uh, it's a um, it's a way of dominating other people. So I I think. You should never accept somebody else's zero-sum way of thinking. You should always challenge that. And you should force yourself. And one of the ways that I did it in my life, that I retruthed, was was in love. I thought for a long time that love was a zero-sum game. And it made me jealous, and it made me envious, and it made me bitter. So I'm constantly reminding myself that love is not a zero-sum game. You can give an infinite amount of respect, love, compliments. You can you can help other people all the time without it hurting you in any way. And I think you should, and I will. I love that. And that makes me think of another quote that I'm just in love with, which is, a candle loses nothing from lighting another candle. And hmm. anything, it just gets lighter in the room. So that's something I always used to think about in those terms. Yeah, so, it's a beautiful, that's a simpler metaphor right. than the long-winded answer you got from me. <laughs> no, but that's like, that, that's like such a great retruthing. Like, why do we always have to battle against each other? Why can't we just come together and see? Like you, yeah. Yeah, like you said, you, you lose nothing from helping other people, seeing things from their perspective. So... Mm. Thank you for that retruthing. I'm adding it to the list. And uh, thank you so much, Magnus, for being on the show and just sharing some of your amazing wisdom. I'm truly honored. 
Um, My pleasure. If we want to follow you, read you, hear you, what, what you have to say, how can we find you and how can we connect with you? So I've left all of social media. I left Facebook in 2012, Twitter in 2013. Uh, I was only on Instagram for about two weeks as an experiment. And then I left <laughs> LinkedIn last year. So uh, I'll, I have a couple of you. books out. No, I have a couple of books out. I have an email address, magnus at magnuslindquist.com. Uh, and that's really it. But I think the books, the books are a way of packaging my seeing what works instead of just putting these snippets out in social media, finding thoughts that might have some bearing and force me to think through them, to retruth them. Wow. How, can I just add another question? How do, how do you sure. feel? How does it feel to live in a world with no social media? Um, yeah, it feels a bit like living in the 1990s, which wasn't so bad. Actually. It was a great time. I was eight yeah. at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were. I was, I was, I was 18, I think. No, what was I in the 90s? I was a 20-something. Oh, I had a rock band. I had a f novel that nobody wanted to publish. I was a miserable business school student, and there was no social media. Wow. And, um, yeah, so that I, I feel like I'm in my mid-20s. Yeah, and by the way, all of you who are like maybe 18 or 20 or that around that age, remember Magnus felt miserable and felt like he wasn't going nowhere, anywhere mm. he was in his 20s. So it's, it's part mm. of that life. When you're in that yeah, age. Yeah, 18, uh, 17 to 27 are the most difficult years in a person's life, I mm. believe. Depending, of course, on external circumstances. But normally that's a time of just deep angst and horror. And I, I, was, I was deeply miserable. Everything sucked. And if people want to talk to me about that and want to get my version of how I got out of it, they are welcome to get in touch. Because that, that is an under appreciated part of life's difficulty those years mm -hmm. we we usually glorify and say you're young you should be happy you should be free right. but i was an old miserable fart in my 20s so and i'm, think, I'm young yeah well, i'm younger say than... like oh you're supposed to be happy you're supposed to feel this way <laughs> and you have everything you know figured out for yourself and why are you complaining mm. that's even making it even worse because yeah yeah. Yeah, I think I think so. So we, I mean, yeah, we we could. I mean, I I've always I I've, I've always felt misunderstood, but in the twenty in my twenties it was even worse because I was misunderstood and like failing at most things. That's how it felt. And I've always had this self image that I'm ugly, and that sort of helped me a little bit, I think. But I can only imagine how horrible it would be if you're actually not ugly, but attractive and your self-image. And I've met so many people who have, who have talked about that, the gap between their internal view and what the world sees them as being. Oh, you're young, you should be happy. You're beautiful, you should be out and about. Mm. You're, you're this, you're that. And I don't think you get so much advice in your 20s. It's just awful. I wish I, I wish... I wish people would give me more advice now when I'm in my 40s. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah but, but they don't do that anymore. Yeah. yeah, but like when you're 40s, you don't, you're like, yeah, whatever. But it's, it's nice to have a conversation with people in your right. 40s. Uh, and you took it for granted in your 20s and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Therese, it's been a pleasure and I wish you the best of luck. And um, uh, I hope we get to speak on this podcast in the future again. 
Thank you so much. And like, since you said that, of course, we're going to have you back. Now people will expect it. So thank you. <laughs> Keep in touch and have a glorious day. Bye, Christ. Thank All you. Right. Ciao. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening today and I really do hope that you felt inspired by my and Magnus talk. And since we did talk some about being hijacked, I really just want to reference that episode I was listening to yesterday, which is a podcast called EO Fire by John Lee Dumas. And this particular episode was number 1629 with Carrie Oberbrunner. So if you want to go listen to it, it's EO Fire episode number 1629. And then also, since we did touch upon the importance of being able to say no, I just recently read this book and I completely consumed it and loved it. And I really needed to learn all this. And the book is called Essentialism. The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and it's written by Gregory, sorry, Greg McCowan. So Essentialism by Greg McCowan. I will also include a link in this episode so you can find it, but I would encourage anyone to read it because it will help you both in your business life, your personal life, in your just pursuit of life in general. So with that said, thank you so much for being here today again, and I hope to talk to you again soon. And if you did enjoy it, please share with friends and family and head over to my podcast, Hey Change, and rate, review, and subscribe because your feedback means the world. So take care and I'll talk to you again soon.